0: This is the Bitcoin Made Simple podcast. Here's your host, Corey Tusek. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. This week's episode, I interviewed Preston Pish. Uh, Preston is part of the Investors Podcast Network, you know, and he's been doing investing podcasts for Probably about seven eight years now um and obviously in the bitcoin world a lot of people know who he is um and and he's had a great influence on uh helping me understand things and so i thought it would be great to have him on the show um also we have a little bit of a different opening um because uh the first uh, 10 minutes or so is about the fact that uh, preston is from pittsburgh just like me um and uh grew up in this small little town that happens to be a small little town that uh my family is moving to so uh so yeah we had an interesting discussion about uh, all things in this this little town um and then uh but yeah when we talked about bitcoin you know we really got into the the qe levers and and how that he does a great way he explains really well of you know why they kind of the fed has to print money and and uh helps you understand why they're really not able to turn that lever off Um, You know, and then, you know, we also talked about what if Bitcoin, what if we didn't have Bitcoin, what that world would look like, Um, you know, and with a dollar being pegged to nothing, how that affects every country around the world uh, geopolitically and all that kind of stuff. And and then also he brought up a cool analogy about proof of work, um, not just proof of work for Bitcoin mining, but proof of work for, you know, basically everything in life and, and how that leads to greater value. Um, and then also you'll notice at the end um, when it sounds like we're signing off, um, don't go anywhere because uh, I actually just at the spur of the moment, we basically signed off and at the spur of the moment cross my mind to ask them about patriotism. Uh, it's something that I've been, um, you know, talking a lot about with with friends of mine that uh, either served in the military or, or maybe police officers or things like that. Um, just because, you know, right now with everything going on in the world, there's a lot of difficulty with people feeling good about their country, you know, so it's not that I don't love my country. It's just like, it's hard, you know, I think we've all been experiencing this whenever you sit there and every day you look around and you're like... Wow this this is a this is a you know bleep show uh, for lack of a better uh, term so you know it's kind of uh, it's it's a good perspective that he gives and I actually would recommend everybody listen to it because he kind of pulls back looks at the macro view um, but also as you'll hear uh, kind of gets into how Bitcoin and money is involved in all of this so uh, you know I really appreciated him uh, answering that because uh, yeah it was kind of last minute just popped into my head. So hope you guys enjoy this episode. Uh, The the sponsor for today's episode is Coinbeast Connect. Do you have questions about Bitcoin? Personalize your learning and book a one-on-one video call with a Bitcoin Pro on Coinbeast Connect. Learn about mining, security, the Lightning Network, DeFi, taxes, and many other topics. It's really easy. Choose your topic and pro and select the date that you're available and bring your questions to the meeting room. Book your first call today by going to Coinbeast Connect, uh, Sorry, coinbeast.com and clicking on the Connect tab. Be prepared for the financial revolution and get the knowledge that you need. Thanks again uh, to Coinbeast for sponsoring the show. If you want to get in touch with me, uh, my Twitter handle for the show is at BitcoinSimply. My personal one is at TusikKori. I don't really use that one too much. Um, and then if you want to email the show, it's Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks seven hours just like all over the place and uh and my buddies are
1: no no sweat at all yeah
0: (laughs) i'm so glad i would have got pinged you know like 15 minutes beforehand but like when i saw you ping, i was like oh my god hey that is tonight and i i totally blanked on it i thought it was the 19th in my head and so yeah um but uh, so I, we have a different opening. I want to thank you for coming on, but uh, this is going to be a little bit of a different conversation than I have with anyone else uh, in the the Bitcoin world to date. Um, are you from Pittsburgh originally? Yes. Born and raised. Yeah, that's uh, born and raised.
1: Now, uh, not like downtown Pittsburgh, but from like the Pittsburgh area, like within yeah, yeah. a 30 minute, you know. Okay. Yeah.
0: So. Um, so i have to tell you how I think we got connected. Cause Princey, um, I was talking to him and he said to me, he said, dude, uh, he's like, if there's one you know podcaster you could interview, who would it be? And I said, it would be Preston Pish, but it's not for the reason you'd think I was like, this is going to sound really weird. And he goes, what do you mean? And I'm like, and I, t- I start telling him the story and he just starts cracking up. He's like, Oh my God, I'm going to, you have to talk to him. <laughs> so um. I, you know, following like all of you, and I'm sure you remember what it was like when you started your podcast, you know, for anyone that's starting a podcast, you know, this is good advice to like, you just got to get out there and, you know, ping people and ping people and don't take it personal. You know, you just, you send a message. If you don't hear back, it's, it is what it is. You know, like I sent Gigi a message in like February and he got back to me in like June and was like, Hey, let's record next week. i was like, okay. Yeah. Um, So, you know, that's just how it is. And I totally get that. So one of the ways I thought, oh, I'll pressed Preston, see if you know I found some people in that way, and uh, so I go on and I see the the skyline in the background, like you're on your <laughs> the city of Pittsburgh, and I'm like, oh my god, like <laughs> he's from Pittsburgh, like I I, I should have known, like because I, I I won't tell you, I could hear it a little bit, you know, like yeah, if you're from yeah. Pittsburgh, you know, you yeah. know, and um I won't tell you which words so you don't have it in your head whenever you're talking in the future. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm uh, pretty
1: sure I know which ones.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's uh, us insers have a little bit of a, uh, we, we know what, uh, what we sound like. So that's one thing. So Pittsburgh, I'm like, Oh, that's cool. And then the town you had listed, Pennsylvania. So that's where you, yeah you grew up, right?
1: Yeah. That's where I grew up.
0: Well, my wife and I are like in the process of building a house there. And like for, I'm bleeping the, the specifics out for the listeners though. This is like a town of how many people,
1: oh it's small uh i mean you're definitely under 500
0: oh yeah yeah like very (laughs) very small rural you know pennsylvania there's not even
1: there's not even a stoplight it's there's only stop signs in the town
0: yeah 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 exactly and uh so i was telling Princey this and i said when i saw that i was like oh that's really bizarre but like i i really need to like probably if i pinged them already i like i maybe tagged you on twitter or something i was like I got to have an interview with them. And then, um, and then, so then I, I went to go to contact you on there and it it had a phone number and I was like, you know, I don't know if it's your real one. So, you know, again, this is all being bleeped, yeah. (laughs) but I'm like, I was like, Oh, maybe this is a real number. Maybe it's, you know, business number, whatever. Give him a call. You know, it was just like a standard voicemail left a voicemail. And then, uh, and then, yeah, that was like I, I told Princey. After that, I was like, I started like panicking a little bit because I was like, I'm gonna move. He lives there, like <laughs> he's gonna see me on like if he doesn't respond, he's gonna see me on Main Street. Like, hi, Preston, will you be my friend? You know, I'm like just like I was like, oh my god, I like all of a sudden look like this stalker, you know that like. <laughs> so yeah, I, I told him I was like, it's there's one person I want to interview, but it's not because of why you think it's because he's gonna if he if he happens to live in this town that of 500 people and he sees me because inevitably everyone knows everyone right
1: they definitely everybody knows everyone yes yeah (laughs) yeah so do you know i think i know who you're talking about yes (laughs) it's
0: uh yeah he um fortunately is they've been really nice and i not to get on the personal end too much but uh like they've been really uh good because my mother-in-law was diagnosed with a like really really serious form of cancer at the end of May and we were like we were rolling along we were going to like we were ready to go and they they could have sold the property to somebody else but they told us they were like yeah take your time you know like we know you got oh, a lot that wonderful. to go through which is you know through it's like i love that community yeah. um yeah but uh but yeah they they are being su- you know everybody's so welcoming there it's such a nice little community it's right by
1: yeah, I mean, okay. uh, I, I know the. <laughs> you know, these there isn't a name or you know person in that town I probably haven't heard of.
0: Yeah, yeah, they. Yeah, I think the there used to be farmland and and bought it and is turning it into thirteen plots and like ours would be basically tucked in behind where the uh, yeah. And so he said, "Oh yeah, he's gonna be your best friend, like going over and you know giving you tools and all that kind of stuff." I was like, "Man, I love that." getting out of the city and, you know, just living somewhere that uh, people were going to be friendly. And you
1: know, talk yeah, to. I know his son. I mean, yeah, dude, that's, it's, that's wild. So, <laughs> anyway.
0: well, yeah. Uh, once I figured out you weren't there, I was like, okay, pressure's off. But uh, but yeah, it wouldn't have been weird if like at the pet parade or something, you'd be like, Oh
1: my God, there's that guy. <laughs> that
0: <parade. laughs>
1: I remember as a kid every year, I mean, I was in the pet parade. Yeah. I mean, that there's like it, never missed, never missed a one of those. Yeah. <laughs> never missed,
0: crying. never missed one pet parade. Uh, and they have a good, you know, the, the,
1: um, and people the, probably are wondering what in the world we're talking about. So like once a year, everybody in the town dresses up their pet and they walk them right down the main street and, uh, there's judges there and everyone's trying to like win for their pet that year. I mean, it's just, <laughs> You can't even, you can't even make it up. Yeah. It's a, it, like people take their fish. Yeah. Well, we, you know, yeah. My,
0: my wife's from, Butte I went Life, with my, so my, neighbor,
1: my neighbor and I, um, he, my neighbor did not have a pet. Well, he had, he had a pit bull as a pet and um, he wanted to take something else for like his little sister. And like, he literally took a pet rock and he pulled that right down, <laughs> right down. <the> street. <laughs> it's, it's crazy.
0: Oh, that's, uh, that's wild. Um, well, uh, so as a standard Pittsburgh question, I got to ask you, are you, you pirates, penguins and Steelers fan or in the sports or,
1: um, so as a kid, I was with this, with the pirates, you know, I, I played baseball as a kid and, um, the pirates were kind of decent as I was growing up. Um, now through 92. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, they played the Braves and uh, Lost Sid Bream, Sid Bream yeah uh, so um but uh yeah so I was a Pirates fan haven't really f- tracked it too much because they haven't really done so great since but um Steelers fan obviously and then I was just never really into hockey all that much even though Mario Lemieux was you know obviously an, an unbelievable player but it wasn't something that I played so I just wasn't into the pens all that much
0: Yeah. Well, and I have to, I'm wearing a Steeler shirt and it has nothing to do with the fact that they have a preseason game going on right now. And I'm talking to a Pittsburgher. Well, like I said, I'm, I'm so out of the loop. I had right before you jumped into the room, I had 50 text messages from my friends. I'm like, what are they texting me about? And they're talking about the Steeler game. Like there's a preseason game (laughs) happening right now. I was like, I I, I don't have enough time for preseason anymore. You know, regular (laughs) season playoffs. Let's do that. Um, so, anyways, yeah. So, I got the Pittsburgh questions out, and if I ever do, we're gonna try and do a Bitcoin night at PNC Park. So, if you're ever uh, be interested in that, we're gonna do like a. I talked to the president of the Pirates and trying to set up for next season, have like a Bitcoin night, and then people can do a and A afterwards, and like come down and ask questions. And CJ Wilson said he'd come and stuff like that. So, oh wow, yeah. That's so I don't know. Cool. If, I don't know if you ever head up this way, but if you ever do that, uh, you know. I'm sure that would uh, be a fun event, and you know, get
1: some people. You'll have to let me know the dates you put it together.
0: Yeah, yeah, that'd be pretty neat. Yeah. Um. So anyway, so first question, or well, first thing I got to tell you, Bitcoin wise, is um, quantitative easing. How long has that been going on? Because that I heard you bring that up on Peter McCormick's podcast like a year or so ago. Mm-hmm. And I literally like stopped the lawnmower and st- I was listening like cut in the grass, stop the lawnmower started Googling like what is quantitative easing? What is this? Yeah. And, and that's what made me become
1: like, like ape into Bitcoin. Cause <laughs> so I was like, what? Yeah. And this is, so when you go back to the 2008, 2009 crisis and, um, I mean, this was such a huge event. If people weren't in the markets and participating in the markets back then, um, you know you got a lot of young people in Bitcoin, so they probably weren't. Um, this was this this event that happened in 2008 with the banks, uh, you know, falling apart, the credit default swap market. I mean, it was just a disaster, and the banks weren't trusting each other through all of this, so they weren't lending to each other, the overnight lending between them. I mean, it was just. Was broke. That's crazy. <laughs> to the point where if, if the government didn't step in, like you were gonna have a, a global meltdown in, in the economy, global economy. And so uh, you know, Bernanke and all them, they're going on the hill and they're um, you know, I remember this really well. I mean, they're going on the hill and they're saying, Hey, we have to, we have to print all this money, we have to insert this in, we have to recapitalize these these banks. We got to give them liquidity so that they're comfortable lending to each other. And so this was really kind of like the first instance um, that you saw this quantitative easing idea, um, the recapitalization of banks um, happen. And then it just never got turned off. And I think that's the part where... You know, I was I was watching this. I obviously wasn't nearly as well versed in financial markets today as I was way back then. But I knew that what was happening was manipulation to prevent a global collapse or a systematic collapse, and it wasn't allowing a free and open market to actually um, remedy itself. So part mm-hmm. of a free and open market is if somebody goes out and they lever themselves too much. And they're unresponsible with their with their borrowing. Well, then they blow up. And then somebody comes in and buys the assets of that company at a fire sale price. And if it's 30 cents on the dollar, well, it's 30 cents on the dollar. Like whatever the free market, like yeah. That's that's what a free
0: market should be, right?
1: That's what a free market should be. Well, you didn't have anything of the sort. And and what you know anybody in finance was was yelling was now you're getting into this idea of. The government is picking winners and losers because they're so big that if they let them fail, that you are you're consciously making a decision to uh, allow this global meltdown. So they ha- so the excuse is that they have to step in and uh, conduct this action. Well, they do this and they do it in epic proportions. It, it looks like a total joke. Now, yeah. relatively speaking, the amount that they inserted it was like a trillion, right? And like we just passed, <laughs> we just <laughs> passing a a bill in the Senate for like three point something trillion, and and like barely like even makes nothing. a headline, like yeah. it's nothing, right? So, um, well the the issue that you run into, so they had to drop interest rates down to zero, mm-hmm. okay, because that is that assisted because going into the 2000, I want to say in like late, I'm sorry, let me rephrase it early 2008 is just that the first quarter of 2008, I want to say your interest rates were probably around 5% uh, mm-hmm. across the board, across the whole duration of the bond yield curve. So you were like overnight money was 5% lending and 30-year bonds were 5% lending. It's it's what you call an inverted or a flat bond yield curve, which is usually an indicator that you're getting ready to go into a recession. At least it was for the 30 or 40 years preceding this event. Mm. So- um. Because it makes no sense that like, if you borrow yeah. money for 30 years, it should be the same rate as like, an yeah. overnight rate. That doesn't make any Take sense. Take
0: that deal any day.
1: Yeah. It doesn't make any sense for the person who's borrowing long-term. But um, So those were the rates going into 2008. So when this big systematic event happened, they were like, all right, well, we're taking overnight lending rates to um, federal funds rates down to zero. And then that'll move the rest of the the duration of the curve down really low to like 3% range or whatever. And uh, not only are, are we going to do that, but then we're going to recapitalize the system. So they, with inserting all this liquidity of a trillion dollars into banks and everything else. And so they do this and you get a really quick bounce in the stock market. So I would say, I'm trying to remember my history here. Um, I would say late 2008, very beginning of 2009, like January, February, you had the market sell off. To about fifty uh, percent correction is what I would say it was. Maybe a little bit more. Maybe even like fifty-five percent correction in like the S and P five hundred mm-hmm. and the Dow Jones. And but once at bottom there at the very start of two thousand nine, um, you saw a swift recovery and a bounce back from that low uh, going into the end of two thousand nine. You saw a substantial. It might even even it out into maybe the summer of two thousand nine, but. This the sell off really kind of only lasted, uh, I'd say from the very top of the market to the bottom. You were probably about a year of of really hard, strong selling, and then most of that happening into the fall of two thousand eight. But um, where it where it really started to get weird for me on the recovery is. So the market's bouncing back. Um, I want to say in like the 2011, 2012, Europe started getting a little strange where they were having some issues in the banking sector. They're going through all these regulatory changes and um, requirements so that something like this never happens again. But the one thing that they just never seemed to turn off was the quantitative easing. So we're like, oh, well, let's just print a bunch of money. Let's step into the bond market let's keep buying bonds. And by doing that, they're, they're pulling that quote-unquote asset off of the market and they're just providing all this cash into the market. Well, the problem that you run into by doing this, especially doing this for over a decade, with, like they have <laughs> at this point, is you're stuffing that cash straight into the hands of the people that own those bonds. And it's not like that's necessarily going to trickle down into the rest of the economy. So if you're there. You know, middle class type person working nine to five, like you don't own those bonds, no. so you're not receiving this cash, and you're definitely not receiving the the premium. Because think about it: if if if, if there's a person that there's an unlimited amount of buying that's coming into this, and I'm calling it unlimited, but they're they're stepping, they're constantly coming into this market and buying it. They're bidding the prices higher, they're pushing the yields lower, and as the yields on the bonds are going lower and lower, just like your house, like. If your house, if you went out and you had a 4% interest rate on your house, a 30-year mortgage on your house, and then all of a sudden the bank comes and says, uh, we can give you 3%. Well, now all of a sudden you can afford a bigger house. right? You can go out and buy a house that's more valuable because your your payments that you're making every month are the same, but you can own something that's of a higher price. And so that example that that everybody understands from a home ownership standpoint is the same exact thing that happens for anything that's equity-based. So that's stocks, it's you know real estate, it's uh, commercial real estate, anything that has equity to it is going through this situation that as interest rates are continuing to get pushed down because central bankers are stepping into the market and buying bonds, pushing yields lower, interest mm-hmm. rates lower, and prices on those bonds higher and higher. The prices on anything that's equity based is going up with it. And then think about the competitive nature of, like, let's just say that the housing of like where you're at is uh, the average house is 250 dollars $300,000. Well, if interest rates go down by two, 2%, like now all of a sudden everybody can afford a house that's $100,000 or $200,000 more expensive, which then pushes the whole market into that space that had a, a much smaller concentration of inventory. Which then's mm-hmm. jacking the prices even higher. So, like these fundamentals that everybody can kind of imagine on a real estate basis, it's just it's just applying to the entire stock market at, all at the same time. So they do this for a decade, right? They never <laughs> like, let up. They never let up. And what? And what, which, by the way, most people don't know that. Like no, that they have no clue because it's not real for them. It's not. Um, you know, you say quantitative easing. You say bond market. Like, how many people were involved in the bond market with one <laughs> percent interest? Nobody. Yeah. Nobody. Like you have Wall Streeters that are buying like literally billion dollar tranches of bonds. And so like they're experiencing this, but then the person who's sitting there at that trading desk, they're getting paid a salary. It's not like it's their equity. It doesn't matter. Yeah. They're sitting there like, oh, okay, well, the rates just keep going lower and I just keep finding more people willing to buy these things and I'll just keep on selling them. So
0: So they've been doing that for 10 years
1: and they've been doing it since the 2008, 2009 crisis. And, um, and now you're at the point where now it's even getting weirder. Okay. So for a decade, it was just QE. So they're, they're inserting all this liquidity into the system and they're doing it via this quantitative easing methodology that's basically stuffing just straight cash into the hands of the wealthy who hold these, these instruments, assets. these bond instruments, and then okay. all the assets that are getting capitalized higher and higher in value because interest rates are going lower. So, this, this money that's getting inserted, the cash, I shouldn't say money, I should say the currency that's getting inserted into the system. What it's doing is it's, is it's appreciating the value of anything that's equity based. And if you own something that's equity based, um, you see your net worth going up. But is that net worth that you can actually like, step out into the market and kind of use for spending or buying? without having any type of tax implications. And the answer is no, unless you want to sell it and pay an enormous capital gains. And then you're dealing with like your long-term savings and disrupting that to to subsidize your living expenses, which people don't necessarily want to do. So uh, long story short, the easiest way I would describe this is you're trying to put liquidity into the system. But the problem is, is it's not actually getting into the system in a liquid kind of way the way it's getting into the system is through capitalization rates and appreciation of net worth on on paper and in your you know your savings account of like your fidelity account like that's going up now and and you have to be an equity owner for that to occur right and so yeah. the, as as that gets more competitive what it's doing is it's gutting the middle class because the middle class isn't able to do this in a way that's meaningful relative to your top five percenters that have all this equity that that continue to receive this cash flow and this recapitalization of of asset prices and all that kind of stuff. So that's how I would describe the quantitative easing piece. Now what they've discovered more recently is (laughs) discovered. Yeah. And I think they all I mean we always knew we've we've been talking about it for years. Anybody that you follow that's a really smart financier knew that like all roads lead to this universal basic income helicopter money uh, outcome based on them pushing interest rates down to zero. And so uh, across the whole duration of the bond yield curve, not just like overnight money, but then you start getting out to like 30-year money and it's yielding like a percent. Like You get to a point where now the whole, it's like pulling a lever. Like Think of the central banks. They got two main levers that they can pull once you're getting into this point where the whole currency is broke. The two levers they can pull once the currency's broke is they can pull the QE lever where they can buy the bond market. The other one is this UBI universal basic income lever, and they come up with these fancy names so nobody cares to to understand this or do the research. But uh, (laughs) stimulus—it's it's it's confusing enough that it's just like oh well UBI. Well, what is that Uh, to your typical person? But all it is is we're going to print a bunch of money and instead of stuffing it into the bond market. And wealthy people basically benefit being beneficiaries of this. We're actually going to just start delivering checks to every single person in the United States. Or if you're ever in Europe, they're doing similar things, right? Um, They're just going to start mailing these checks to people directly. And uh, now that's how they're inserting the liquidity into the system. Now, where? go ahead. You had a
0: question. No, no, no. I was going to say, I mean, which is just crazy. Like, I mean, it's It's nuts. I I can't believe that this is you know, I'll let you continue. But yeah, I mean, that was the thing that like I told Guy Swan, I was like, that was my moment of like, I don't have enough chairs. I I, like, I got to sell more chairs, you know, because, because I, you know, I went down that rabbit hole and I think I probably spent a week researching quantitative easing after I heard that for the first time. And I was like, this is all going to explode. This is done. It's over game over. This, This is done. And I'm not like an economist. I just, I was like, mathematically, this doesn't work, which I just interviewed Greg Foss. So, you know, it was all math, you know, it's it all mathematics. Uh, and uh, But yeah, so go ahead.
1: Okay. So on the UBI front, once you start mailing these checks out, it's pretty intuitive for anybody that's, that's watching this saying, okay, this doesn't add up. This doesn't seem like it's going to end well. Well, the, what you're doing is you're putting these perturbations into the uh, economy that now people don't want to go work or- if they are working, they want to get paid under the table or, um, you know, let me go get hired for two weeks and then get fired so that I can collect unemployment plus the UBI kicker that's, that's now so been kind of bucks, yeah. yeah, so they're getting that. And so like you're, you've, you're putting all these things in place because the middle class and lower class, which is a majority of the population is suffering relative to the, the, the growth and the capitalization rates of the equity and the few people that can actually own that equity. Um, It's not this uh, equal distribution of wealth. It's very skewed, if you were going to plot it on like a bell curve, that the ownership of of the wealth in the world is owned by such a few amount of people at this point because of these actions that have been taken for a decade. And I would argue they even go back further than that. That gets into a, a much more technical conversation. That people will argue with you on, but in, in general, you can pull that QE lever a bunch of times. It's going to consolidate the wealth into the hands of the wealthy. You start pulling the UBI lever. Now all of a sudden you're getting all these distortions and supply chains and people not wanting to work. And like, so there's yeah. tons of issues in that regard, right? Like neither one of these are good solutions. Um, but I'll put it this way: if you have no alternative. Which I would argue, you had no alternative prior to 2008 as to how this could be resolved on a Mm -hmm. global level. You didn't. Now that you have Bitcoin in place, I would I would tell you there is a solution to how this can be resolved Uh, in a in a way that's completely decentralized and like one country doesn't win more than the other. That would be a a fair way to reset the system. Mm -hmm. Um, but kind of where I was going with with that idea is, um. They have the. They had to be playing with these levers because if they chose in 2008 to not play with the two levers, the UBI and the QE, like you are consciously deciding to blow up the global economy, and it <laughs> would is, it yeah, would seize yeah. up, right? So it's very easy for people to go on a show or have a discussion and say, "Oh, those central bankers are the evilest people in the in the universe. They ruined everything." Mm-hmm. And to a certain extent. It's a tr- it's a true statement, but I think it's way out of context if you don't look at it in the breadth of like probably eighty years worth of decision making. Yeah, right? like yeah. The, <laughs> the people at two thousand eight, the Bernanke's and the whoever's that the you know they didn't the set that table. That, they did not. That's right. They did not. Um, and people would say, well, "Well, then it was Alan Greenspan." I was. T- I can show you some charts and I can do some analysis that it was even before Alan Greenspan. And like the whole history of, because if you really want to get into it, it's like, well, why did we come off the gold standard in '71? Greenspan didn't have, you know, yeah, <laughs> right. Well, the reason we did is because we were manipulating the currency against the 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 benchmark gold standard that we had set ourselves. And so, like, it's a it's a really slow progression of manipulation that had occurred for decades that then mm. led up to these culminating events, uh, 2008 till now. Where these central bankers that are in are in power and globally are doing this coordinated effort to prevent the global economy from just totally straight melting down.
0: Yeah. So they I mean, I agree with you, you know, like they almost they have no choice at this point. They have
1: no choice. Like could you imagine? Well, let's just put it this way: like, look how beneficial it is for somebody who owns a house. If interest rates go down one percent, you go and you refi your house, and like you drop mm-hmm. your payments by two or three hundred dollars or whatever, depending on the value of the house. And now think about what would happen if we went the other way. What if interest rates went up two percent? <laughs> could could the American household handle that? Considering how in debt up to their eyeballs they are and how levered they are, there ain't no way in hell that the typical American household could withstand a hundred or a two hundred basis point move. On their real estate price or on their loan rates. Mm-hmm. So now think of it from a sovereign debt standpoint. So now we got all this, we've got this uh, political uh, situation where both parties have learned that if they vote themselves money into their districts and outspend whatever cap exists their chances for reelection are way higher and there's nobody from their district telling them you need to be responsible with your spending there on the Hill. Like ain't yeah, nobody in fact they are saying the opposite. They're saying, where's my money? Where's my check?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Because you better get in there and pass another $3 trillion bill. You're that giving puts it to everybody
0: money. else. Why That's don't you right. To that me. puts
1: more money into my pocket. And so you have this cognitive, uh, just total lack of knowledge uh, for the people that are alive today that did not grow up in the great depression. Mm-hmm. This The stories of a great depression are completely removed from anything that feels like it could happen to them. Yeah. And um, they don't teach it in school. They don't teach it in college unless you major in business. And then I would even argue that, you know, you go get a business degree. Do they really degree. teach it? <laughs> Do they? Well, they're teaching you, they're teaching you, Discount cash flows based off of a stable currency, which we don't even have. <laughs> yeah, right. Like if yeah. if you go to business school, they're going to teach you all these models and all this this stuff on how to determine the value of a of a company. But in those models, is an underlying assumption that no one ever talks about, which is you have to be dealing with a sound currency that's not getting debased at a breakneck pace with trillions of dollars of QE and UBI attached to it. Try do it. Do a discount model accounting for that because I would argue ain't nobody but Michael Saylor and a few others that are that are understanding what that math looks like these days mm-hmm. so yeah that, that's where we're at
0: So we're at this position now where we have to do it and um, basically you know the way I look at it with uh, Bitcoin is I feel like it's something that uh, was placed and it's like the safe secure like, Safety hatch, you know, like the the escape hatch, where it's like the house is on fire, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh my god, there's this escape hatch down here. Everybody, you know, funnel through here as quick as you can. Um, you know, the, the more the fire starts burning, you know, the harder it is for everybody to get through that little, you know, bit more people start panicking to try and get out. Um, and uh, and yeah, I, I, it's just it's crazy that uh, you know we have this opportunity because I mean, w- what do you think would be happening right now if we didn't have Bitcoin?
1: Well, it, it'd be a really scary time in the world if you didn't have Bitcoin there as, as the escape hatch. And I completely agree with your analogy there because that's what it is. Um, because the, the path that would probably, I would imagine what they would try to be doing right now is they would try to be going through the IMF. They would be trying, this goes into Jim Rickard's big uh, thesis of using the SDR as like a global money and, um, and and what that would result in is no change, right? Yeah. It would appear as if they were coming up with a solution to the problem by having this global money. And um, it would be acting as like this currency basket of euro, yen, dollar, all that kind of stuff. And based on the, the, the size of those various fiat currencies, you would have them all con- kind of like conglomerate into this basket that would be measured against the SDR the special drawing rights out of the IMF but that special drawing right could just be debased against mm-hmm. all that basket and so like you're not solving anything in that scenario you you're not going to have some type of international organization like the IMF be able to look at any one of those countries and say you got to stop debasing your currency because it's in this basket and you need to start being responsible because if they tell one of them that all of them have to do that yeah but it's a tragedy of the commons situation right the the idea that each person has an has an incentive to devour the others resources in in this scenario dealing with currencies but that's that's what's playing out here is each country has an incentive to devalue so that they can suck the 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 currency of the others participants into their own domain
0: mm. because
1: when they do that. So let me just explain. So if the US debases their currency, what happens is, is when they sell internationally, their goods and products, like let's say I'm, I'm, uh, I'm just a computer chip manufacturer or I'm selling corn or I'm selling whatever, whatever the product is or whatever the service is, if the dollar gets cheaper, and I'm living in Europe, and I see this. I'm saying, well, I need to go over there and buy whatever because it's cheaper for me to buy it there and and ship it to this location because the dollar's so weak right now, mm-hmm. right? So what it does is it attracts euros or any other currency into the U.S. because that debasement happened as a U.S. citizen. Nobody's running around complaining because they're not all traveling to Europe or wherever to notice that difference in the currency exchange but they are noticing that the top line of of their income statement has gone up with foreign currency inbound purchases. Mm. Right? Okay. So that's what's happening and that's why everybody every country has an incentive when there's no peg in place every country has an incentive to debase their currency just a little bit more than their neighbors so that huh. they can, can so that they can create this vacuum of foreign currency to flow into their country
0: and suck in the wealth of other countries around that's them that's
1: right that's right and now what happens so like let's let's pull the thread on that a little bit more so europe is now noticing that their that their euro is appreciating against the dollar and they're saying hmm we can play that game let's debase our currency our euro against the dollar and let's suck those dollars back over here and so it's this tragedy of the commons amongst fiat currency because there's no global peg and um, and so having this. Uh, my point is really if if we would try to do something fancy with a special drawing rights through the IMF you're not going to get away from this because they're not going to yeah they're,
0: there's they're not going to get
1: along yeah and 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 they're never going to let that body that IMF uh, governmental like group global organization, uh, NGO, uh, uh, put any type of pressure to them. (laughs) It's just going to be like, get lost, (laughs) right? So um, that's where Bitcoin is different is because nobody can shut it down, nobody can control it, but yet it can supply a fixed peg number of units against this fiat debacle that's a race to the bottom. A race mm-hmm. to the base faster than their than their constituents. Meanwhile, like Bitcoin's just standing there, looking at it saying, I'm the same number of units, <laughs> still <laughs> twenty one million. That's right. And there ain't anybody they can shut that down or or tell me to be different.
0: Yeah, so. and you know that's what um you know I've seen as uh you know even with the the whole news coming out of uh, this infrastructure bill and all the garbage that's in there. Um, you know, and and the mess that that's going to create in the United States it's like, well, I mean, Bitcoin, like it's still going to produce new blocks every 10 minutes. You know, it doesn't matter. Like the U S could ban it and it's still going to produce, you know, I mean, you saw what happened with China, you know, China banned it, and Hey, what do you know? We're still producing new blocks. That's crazy. Um, it's amazing. It, it it really is. Um, and we'll get into the technical side of that a little bit, but like, uh, you know, on like a, a wider level, it, it really is weird. Like, have you noticed how it, it kind of like seeps into like, I've noticed it's seeping into different parts of life where I'm like, it really is like, it solves so many problems in the world. It, you know, one of the great things I love about Bitcoiners is that they all want to make the world a better place. You know, that's, that's really a common theme across. Um, So yeah, it's just one of those things where you so like, oh my God, what if there wasn't? Bitcoin like what do we what do we do in that scenario um and uh you know I guess that's where we start to sound like a cult because you know all of a sudden we're like you know uh hail bitcoin you know and all that kind of stuff but
1: uh, for me the cult is the fiat currency
0: yeah, yeah like
1: people who are clinging to the old system like I can take that argument and that that uh labeling and flip it flip that mirror right back on the person saying it and be like you might want to take a look inside before you start saying that we're a cult because what you're signing up for and the insanity that, and the total mispricing of reality mm-hmm. is such a, um, I mean, at the end of the day, when when we exchange currency, what we're really exchanging is energy. And mm-hmm. so like when you earn a dollar, it's supposed to have like this, 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 immutable like value to it that's associated with the energy that you expended in order to receive it and so like if you're a doctor you get paid a higher salary but you also did this this test of proof of work of studying all these books and all this terminology and extra schooling and blah 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 like the proof of work associated with becoming a doctor versus Becoming a, a skilled laborer of two years of schooling versus somebody who graduated out of high school, like there's a reason that person's getting paid a higher valuation per hour of what they've done because of the energy that they personally expended in order to get to this point to be able to provide a service um, mm-hmm. that is not something that every single person can do. Right. Um, and so when we think about the fiat currency that's out there, And the fact that you have these uh, Wizard of Oz type entities that are pulling levers that are inserting these units, these additional units into the system, what they're really saying is, um, I don't have to play by a rule or a unit that um, has the same valuation that these people who already had some of these units were playing by when they performed their proof of work. And Hmm. when you, when you get into Bitcoin, it's, uh, you
0: can't mess with that proof of work.
1: You can't mess with the proof of work. You can't mess with that valuation process that's associated with the unit of measure that is there. Mm -hmm. So,
0: so yeah, so you can, you can't falsify the proof of work and, um, you know, you can't skate by and cheat on the test basically. Unless yeah. you happen to randomly guess the uh, the number, <laughs> just write yeah. it down, type it into a computer. But what are the odds of that happening? You so you're uh, you're an engineer, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, mm-hmm. What did you study? What was uh, aerospace? Your field aerospace engineer. Mm-hmm. Okay, because I my brother-in-law is an engineer. He's you know a civil, um, but I I told him I said, dude, I'm, you got to get into this. And He started following Bitcoin, and mm-hmm. I was like, it's an engineer's dream come true. It you really know, like, is. Yeah. Yeah. So, talk a little bit about that. Like, what from an engineering perspective, when you saw Bitcoin for the first time and you started digging into it, you know, like what what was it? What were your revelations in seeing it?
1: The thing that the game theory on it for me was just miraculous of how um, somebody could get all these different things happening, and then the incentive for all of it was pointing back to further and further adoption until it takes over. and then um, the energy burn, just like uh, harnessing, you know, Adam Back's proof of work into this, the encryption piece of it is just a mathematical marvel. Um, you know, whoever <laughs> developed this thing, I can assure you, is a mathematical genius. Whoever yeah. that person is, um, and and a master of game theory, a person who understands and thinks about game theory at, at levels that. Are hard for anybody to probably even comprehend. Um, so those were some of the early things that I noticed. The you could get into just a whole doctorate level uh, analysis of of the network effects associated in, in the understanding that the designer of this would have had as to the network effects that mm-hmm. would have matured over the years. Yeah. Um, I'm of the firm opinion that the four year Having cycle um, was a deep and profound understanding of Moore's, uh, Moore's law and mm-hmm. harnessing Moore's law as part of the incentive structure. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but then in parallel, not only understanding that and harnessing that, but then in parallel doing it in a way that would allow the price appreciation of Bitcoin to be a time release fuse, almost like a Trojan horse. To allow itself to in, to gradually, not abruptly, insert it into the existing financial system, so that all those financial rails could slowly mature, so that it wouldn't become banned by governments. Yeah. And so um, maybe, and, and I could be giving the designer Satoshi uh, way too much credit. Maybe some of it was just luck in the design, yeah. but. But everything that I look at and then his his past writings kind of suggest that it wasn't and that it mm-hmm. was um, kind of a miraculous uh, and probably one of the most ingenious dis- discoveries, uh, inventions, designs uh, that the world has ever come by. And it's, yeah. it's hard for people to see that in a soft kind of way because when you're talking about software, um, it's uh, it's... I think a little bit harder for people to grasp, but like when they look at the pyramids, it's just like it's it's something you can understand. It's like right there. <laughs> yeah. But like when I look at like what this is, um, it's it's on that kind of level.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, as much as you try to attack it, you know, and that's what I love about Bitcoiners is they think of every attack vector. You know, like there's not one, they're like the most skeptical people in the world. They, they think that this was going, they still think some of them, I think it's going to get, you know, it's, it's all going to be a Ponzi. So they're trying to figure out how is this going to blow up in our face? And, you know, they've done it where, as you know, you go to the, uh, you know, the shit coins and they, they, they like, don't, don't, don't worry about that. Don't look, don't look at that. Um, you know, it's, it, it might be a weakness, but let's not talk about it. Um, yeah. And it, the timing, like you said, the way that it gets put in, it, I jokingly say this all the time that it's like, it. I my one percent theory that uh, Satoshi is from the future, just the timing of everything. Where I was like, you know, because everybody, I, I making a documentary called "Searching for Satoshi," and um, and really, it's not the doc Satoshi. It's about to like you know figure out like why it's not important and we'll never find out. Honestly, that's what I believe. We'll never find out, mm-hmm. and that's a good thing. But even if he did come out somebody asked me on a twitter space last night they're like what if what if the satoshi revealed himself what would happen i was like probably nothing you know a little bit of market you know fluctuation that would be different than what would happen if he didn't but uh, he can't stop it now so you know what what's the point you know but uh, which, which
1: even goes further to the brilliance because um for a person to understand all these different facets of engineering design I mean you have to have a PhD in like all these different areas. Oh
0: yeah, like five and, different degrees. <laughs>
1: but but the I think the the thing that then really makes you think like wow is is the humility that the person or people must have had and the foresight that they must have had to know that if this thing is truly going to take over as a global reserve status, the one of the only ways that could happen is if it remains anonymous because yep. i mean look at ethereum as a as a great example of look at how much queuing that community takes from vitalik yeah um and it's for good or for worse if he comes up with a brilliant comment or idea on like what needs to be um added or the dumbest idea ever that needs to be added that community is is um treats it almost with like a religious fervor yeah and i think that that is actually a liability yeah. Um,
0: Especially in the long term, you know, maybe right now it's hard to see why that's a liability, but I agree. Yes. I think, you know, as time goes on here, because with stuff going on, I mean, they can call Vitalik in front of the, in, Cong- in front of Congress, in front of the Senate, you know, I mean, they can question him. You know, there is no person they can pull in and question about Bitcoin. Um, so do you think, uh, So, you, I, I take it, you think we'll never find out who Satoshi is like I do?
1: Yeah, I, don't th- I definitely don't think it's going to be uh, Satoshi coming forward and saying, I I was Satoshi and here's the proof. I definitely don't think that's yeah. going to be the case, um, And but maybe there's a one-off chance that somebody's able to piece something together. Figure it out. Suppose who the person is, maybe. Yeah, That. I mean, I'm not going to roll that one out.
0: Did you ever think of the thing? I never thought of this person until Shinobi brought it up, and uh, I've been obsessed with it for like 10 days now, is John Nash you know, beautiful mind. Mm -hmm. And I, I I don't think it's him. You don't think it's him. (laughs) No, I, his, his understanding of game theory is what really like, I was like, you know what it is. (laughs) Somebody really knew how to play this game. Um, Yeah. I think the game
1: theory piece is huge, but I think when you look at the person's understanding of mathematics and all the encryption side of it, like Mm -hmm. you have to have somebody who is just a total savant at mathematics to piece the initial parts of this together. Mm-hmm. from yeah. the encryption standpoint and then just the, the the calculations that were done um in order to know the hash rate adjustments and like that kind of stuff yeah i d- i don't think it was him but who knows yeah who knows
0: yeah. it's it's just fun to speculate and that's what uh like the reason it's searching for satoshi for the documentary is just it's a cool way to it's like a nice narrative to allure people you know that aren't bitcoiners um, but yeah, I'm totally giving a spoiler alert, but if you're listening to this podcast then that means you agree with me and you will watch it anyways, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's the ultimate thesis is to, to prove why we don't need to know, you know, and, and basically, yeah. you know, we all are Satoshi, uh, in, um, so yeah, a couple more questions here. Uh, so got going to ask you about stock to flow. Cause, um, you know, that's something I have subscribed to, you know, plan B's model, um, because, you know, people, I mean, people are all over the place with being critical about it, you know, and saying, oh, it's not this or, you know, it's not that. What What do you see behind, you know, the validity behind? It? I mean, not that it's valid, but, you know, you seem to be, you know, subscribed to Plan B's theory, like I do, that it, it at least has merit right now. You know, like Michael Saylor said, you know, some 10 billionaires could come in and buy it and blow up every model. But, um, you know, do you, what What brought you into that? And you you still you know, follow the stock to flow and think that that's going to play out here in the short term?
1: Yeah. So I like the model. And what I like about the model is I think it models uh, a rudimentary estimate of what production cost It will be near the end of the four-year epoch. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, how it gets there, like the rate at what, what it gets there is all up for interpretation. And I think that that might be why there's a lot of people in the community that, that dislike it, I think one of the most common complaints that you hear against it is, well, it doesn't, it does not account for demand. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, as long as the hash rate's going up, I would tell you there's demand. So, yeah. <laughs> because if the hash rate isn't going up, uh, then what that tells you is nobody's going to go out there and dig a hole if somebody isn't buying the dirt. Um, and so, what's the proof that somebody's willing to buy the dirt that's being dug up? Um, well, it's the fact that, more and more people keep going out there to dig up more dirt.
0: Shovels so, are getting sold left and right.
1: That's well, And you can see it in the hash rate increase. So um, when you look at and Plan B's done, um, you know models on uh, other chains, and it doesn't work. And I would argue the reason it doesn't work is because the hash rate is volatile and it's not keeping the. It's, it just doesn't. Not keep on it going a steady climb. Like, yeah, that's right. So that's why it won't work. Is because it's not modeling. A consistent rise in hash rate, which is telling you there's a there's a consistent amount of demand that is there at the ready, ready to buy the coins, at a rate of 10 minutes per bl- uh, block that's mined. Mm-hmm. So th- I think of it like this: like let's say I was selling lemonade, and explain. S- wait,
0: because you have a Dunder Mifflin shirt on, I have to go there with the explain this to me like I'm 10 years, you know, like I'm eight years old and. then... <laughs> No, explain it so, to me like I'm five <laughs> next year I' Oscar be
1: six. Oscar yeah. explain yeah. this to me like I'm five um, so uh, the lemonade yeah so lemonade stand and let's say I have I set it up there and there's a line of people ready to to buy the lemonade and but I only sell one cup every ten minutes okay I, and I, I I only have one cup to sell every 10 minutes okay mm-hmm. if I Let's say I'm doing that and the line's getting longer and longer and longer. Am I going to keep selling my lemonade? Of course I am. Every 10 minutes, as soon as I get it, I'm going to try to sell it. And the line just is always there. Maybe there's one person in line. Maybe there's 10 people in line or whatever. Now, imagine um, imagine that I'm there with the lemonade and there's nobody there to buy it, right? And it takes an hour before even one person shows up. And I'm, but I'm doing all this work that's associated with getting the cup. I'm pouring it. I'm mixing it up, right? And I'm doing this work, and it it has a real cost for me, mm-hmm. right? Let's say then I take that that lemonade. I'm selling. I'm selling it for one dollar every ten minutes. But since there's nobody in line, um, I can only sell one per hour. And let's say that I'm selling it for uh, you know fifty cents. So in that scenario, if it costs me a dollar to make it, and I'm only selling one per hour and I'm making 50 50 cents on it, I'm losing money. So what do I do? I stop doing that activity because there's not enough people that are showing up. There's not enough demand for for the work that I'm performing to do that. So the fact that Bitcoin keeps chugging along at its 10-minute blocks, and more and more people are showing up with more and more lemonade stands, that tells me that the demand is not is keeping pace with the issuance rate. And so mm-hmm. when you have that understanding of there's constant demand, okay? And then all the other things that he's doing the model, what what it tells me is it's it's making an assessment based on the flow of what's coming out and the stock that's been issued and the demand is constantly there that I then can model this. Okay? Now, to Michael Sailor's point. Let's say we have a sovereign. I'll, I'll take it a step higher, right? Let's say we have a sovereign country that comes in like a large one, like the US. And they're like, we're gonna we're gonna start putting this on our in our treasury, right? And we're just gonna start printing a bunch of fiat money and we're gonna start buying the socks out of this thing. Is mm-hmm. stock to flow going to remain a valid model? No. <laughs> no, that's that's no gonna it's gonna take not. off. But where I think stock to flow does provide a valid model is it's mapping out and it's showing you the the production cost of what a miner is going to be willing to sell this for, or basically what your production cost is to, to make this. Mm-hmm. Um, and as long as the customers remain in line, and so how am I how am I able to see whether the customers keep showing up at the pace that I'm that I'm minting it be, by looking at the hash rate. Keep going. And you up. can
0: tell that you're gonna, you're not going to lose that demand because they're there
1: and because because people are valuing the work that's being performed, mm-hmm. right?
0: Yeah. So you're getting the value for what you're doing. You know, what I mean, if if nobody wanted a doctor, why would you go, you know, to med school and and put all yeah. that energy into it? Um, so that leads me to my next question about uh, electricity. I've heard you mentioned before, and I wanted to kind of pull on the thread of uh, to use your term, <laughs> uh, pull the thread on electricity setting the floor because yeah. I think that that I I've as know, long I mean,
1: as hash rate keeps going up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so I wanted to get your your background on like, you know, that's what you think. I mean, you you think as long as hash rate keeps going up, and that's what stock to flow really shows, mm-hmm. is that the production cost is going to keep going higher and higher. Um so when something when you you know when and by the way, this is not financial advice. I you know put that out there. But you know, I subscribe to that when, when you're looking at things, and I, I believe in, you know, I DCA and I, I just hodl, I don't trade or anything like that. But when you see, you know, Bitcoin uh, go from 64 and change or 65 and change, whatever we were at, you know, drop all the way down to, to 29, is that basically saying, are you saying that it costs 30, 25, 30 grand to, to mine a
1: Bitcoin or? No, I think your production cost is, you know, my model that I'm using is. Plan B is, is suggesting that the next level or the next plateau is 100,000. I think that's the price that the current stock to flow is eventually working itself towards during this four year period of time.
0: Mm-hmm. Right.
1: So at $45,000, is Bitcoin underpriced for this epoch? Yes. In my opinion, yeah. it is. Am I buying more? And with my free cash flows, I get each month. Oh yeah. (laughs) Because because my opinion is that it's that it's undervalued. Now, if the price ran to let's say it ran to two hundred thousand, and you're still in this four year epoch, um, is it overvalued? Maybe. Um, it could it be yes, it could be. Um, would it surprise me if the price came back down to the hundred thousand? Would it surprise me if the price came back down to sixty thousand after hitting two hundred? and then coming in and porpoising itself back to 100, it wouldn't surprise me at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that could totally be in the cards for the next three years is yeah. that scenario playing out. Um, but I think that as as more and more hashing continues to come online, uh, you're going to find that the that it gets more and more competitive for that price. And then what it does is it polarizes the price to that production cost for that specific epoch. Now, where you could be wrong is going back to the scenario that I described earlier with like a sovereign country entering and you're, you're receiving so much demand for the work that's being performed that the trust in the old system that has uh, such a higher market cap and utility in today's terms, right? Mm-hmm. everybody's using the dollar, everybody's using the euro relative to Bitcoin- but if you start getting sovereign countries that are now onboarding and using this as their as their settlement layer, well, it might just take over and it might not just stop. And that's where you get into the whole super cycle idea. And and when that happens, like this whole model of stock the flow and, and all that kind of, I think it all just dies.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, and that's gonna be the the uh uh Samuel L. Jackson, hold on to your butts moment, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when that, uh, you know, that's what everybody that's listening to this, you know, that's why you'll be happy that you stacked and stacked. I'll, have to, I'll send you, I don't know if you saw it, but I made a video, like you were saying, putting more cash flows into to Bitcoin during this. Uh, I made a buy the dip uh, video um, that was uh, Tom Cruise's character from uh, Tropic Thunder. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Les oh, yeah. Grossman uh, and it's with him dancing but I just I put it to that song the the opportunity song by Pet, Bo- Pet Shop Boys and it was like him dancing and like it was like about buying the dip you know and like you see the Bitcoin price just going up and down and it was like you know selling the car selling everything you know it was just that's uh that's basically how the summer has ever since May 17th that's what I was like I do I have anything I can sell right now in my house that you know, maybe a lemonade stand. You know, like that's not a bad idea. Lemonade for for Bitcoin. Um, so yeah, I I, uh, I I think everybody should be buying the dip and uh, and going uh, down that route. Well, I uh, I gotta ask too. You've got the radio voice, and did you know that before you got into to podcasting?
1: I still don't hear it. It doesn't sound like I do. Like I people tell me that, and I'm I'm very uh, humbled and uh, appreciative. But yeah, I
0: don't hear it. <laughs> I got to ask, I wonder if it's a microphone, what microphone do you well, use? Well, yeah. And I have,
1: I have very good uh, audio equipment. Um, this is a Heil PR 40 is the, is okay. the microphone. But yeah, I mean, it's,
0: it's, yeah, it's nothing. It's just uh it happens. You know, uh,
1: nobody in my life have, had ever told me that, Oh, you should go into radio. You know, like there's some people you'll <laughs> yeah. hear, like when you're out, you're like that person should be on the radio. No one had ever told me that in my entire life. So Maybe it maybe it's much more the audio equipment than anything else.
0: Yeah, and uh, if you don't mind, I mean, do you have a little bit like a couple more minutes that I want to ask you about the podcast yeah. just specifically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm sure you've been asked this many times before, but uh, you know, you started the podcast with about seventy. Oh, by the way, I do have a funny story to tell you about that with Bitcoin. Adult, people getting into Bitcoin. Um, so this lady that I had not seen since I was like four years old. You know one of those like situations and she's like oh my god I haven't seen you since you were a little kid you know and like like okay um and she somehow gets it we get into the conversation of investing and she's telling me about stocks and blah 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 and all this stuff and she's like what do you invest in and I was like one hundred percent Bitcoin and she was like oh honey oh no oh no that's no you shouldn't do that and she's like going on and on and and um and I was like Basically got to the point of telling her like, yeah, the entire monetary system that you believe in is going to explode um, and Bitcoin is going to be the only thing left standing. Um, but it's so funny. I was just about I was trying to think in my head as I'm going through. I'm like, who would be a good person for her to listen to? So I'm thinking, you know what, uh, Preston, like because he came from the value investing, you know what I mean? Like long history. So I should tell her to, to listen to the investors podcast and, and she'll she'll come to light. And she brings her phone to me to show me who I should listen to for getting into stocks as opposed to Bitcoin. And it's the investors. Podcast. It's your, it's your podcast. And I was like, I was just looking at her and I was like, you're not going to believe this. I was like, but have you noticed how Preston is not, you know, like, have you noticed a little different content? She's like, Oh yeah, I should, I've been really busy. So I haven't, she's like last year has been crazy. I haven't been able to keep up with as much. I was like, Preston is the one that like has really helped me understand what the value of Bitcoin is and why I'm in this scenario. And like her mind melted at that point where it was just like, she was just about to tell me, listen to Preston. He'll tell you to get into stocks and value. investing." <laughs> and I was just like, ah, well, this is interesting. Um <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, so that uh, for anybody
1: listen, I'm really sorry for all the confusion out there. Like I know I've I've taken some various turns through the years.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you know, for someone that was in value investing, I mean, I think that I think that says a lot <laughs> for understanding what the value of Bitcoin, you know, and and why that is so, you know, why it is what it is, you know, to to make that uh sharp turn, I guess.
1: It, for me, it was well, how can and it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about the business schools teaching these discount cash flow models and them not understanding the underlying unwritten untalked about rule and assumption which is you're dealing with a with the stable currency like nobody asked that question. yeah, I know I never did until it was just like why isn't this really like why are all these momentum picks just like murdering it but not just like for a year because in the past you'd have like these You'd have these phases in a market cycle and a credit cycle where like, momentum would do really well, but then there was these periods where value would do really well. Well, from 2008, 2009, up until this day, value has not outperformed. It's underperformed uh, momentum. And it's like, well, when's it going to start performing again? Well, why isn't it? Why is this different than anything we had seen in previous credit cycles? And it was because they never let a free and open market ever happen again.
0: Like, they never let it decide what they never let it, they did.
1: never let uh, creative destruction occur.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. if you if, never if you fail at business, you should fail.
1: Yeah. I mean, look at what happened with COVID. They were step the here in the US, they were stepping into the market and buying corporate debt, not just like adjusting the federal funds rate. Like they're there literally manipulating the credit worthiness and the ownership of like corporate debt in Japan they're literally own like half the equity market they've they're effectively nationalizing the 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 free and open equity market but yeah. they're doing it through small equity purchases and not like oh this company is now the government they're do- they're nationalizing everything <laughs> and it's it's just off the charts nutso crazy and uh, you know and 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 so you know when i was first starting out and I was building websites that help people learn this stuff and go through the valuation process. Like, hey, how do you value a stock? Well, you got to have an IRR, an internal rate of return calculation that you're doing on future free cash flows. And you're trying to figure out what that is. Hey, is it better than the 10-year treasury? Well, how much better? That's your risk-free rate. Like When you're doing those calculations and you're looking at it, and then the calculations are getting compressed, especially that IRR, and you're looking at the internal rate of return and you're looking at that and you're saying these discount rates that I'm using the value of these companies are getting so compressed, they're going to zero. Well, in those equations, when you put the zero on the the, uh, denominator of the equation, like that means things go to infinity. Yeah. Right. The closer you get to it. Yeah. It just keeps going. And so um, I could tell that like, you know, once, once we got into this cycle far enough, it started getting to the point I was like, okay, like clearly they're not going to let up. Clearly they're going to keep compressing these interest rates. Clearly they can't let them normalize. And so, how does this resolve itself? Like, what is the solution here? Mm-hmm. And uh, luckily, I was fortunate enough to, to uh, find Bitcoin. And then, more importantly, I was fortunate enough to exercise enough critical thinking that got me over the hump of. Of understanding how nuanced it is, and it's very nuanced, like we were talking about earlier. And uh, for a lot of people in finance, they're just they're just not there. They're they're
0: you know, they just want to stick with the status quo.
1: Yeah, and and it's it's really hard to challenge this when you're making four hundred thousand dollars a year or more on Wall Street, and you're just like, no, oh, these idiots. Like, why can't they just? figure out that the market's just, you know, you always got to be in the market because that's the thing that they chirp amongst each other and just they never force themselves to say or force themselves to go out into like everyday America and see how people are suffering. They're not seeing the consequences. They're not seeing like the damage that has been done through all of these policies that, like we said earlier, pretty much had to be done.
0: Yeah. Even though I don't
1: even though I don't agree with them.
0: Yeah. And it is sad. I mean, it kind of like breaks my heart, you know, even like I I said, with all the the money printing that's happening. And, you know, I swear, like every time I've seen, you know, when I know there's another round of stimulus going out and then all of a sudden I see I look around neighborhoods and I see like new trampolines and new consumer products, you know, like all these consume, consume, consume. um,
1: And I don't know. UBI checks are, are I mean, they're spent before they even arrive.
0: Oh yeah, it's a, it's mentally like, hey, that's coming. So where are we gonna where are we gonna put it? And it's just you know, I feel bad because people don't know what's happening to them. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just unknowingly falling into this trap. And so they, that's why, you know, I think you know we need as many voices out there because it's just you know, it's unfortunate. Um, but yeah, it, I found that Bitcoin what's, has made me less consumer.
1: You know, what, what's going to be neat, I think, in the in the coming five years is. You're gonna have just like the internet. And you go back into the '90s, and like you know, a few people were using it. Then all of a sudden, like everybody's using it. Everybody's benefiting from it. That's gonna be Bitcoin, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, especially as you go into these next five years, it's gonna be like everyone's talking about that. But these people are crazy. To, well, I bought a little bit of it, and I I bought one percent. Now it's like ten percent of my portfolio because it just keeps going up. I should probably own more. And then it's gonna be. Um, it's going to be like this cascading event and where it's going to really get interesting is if you're able to hold to your house on a fixed rate interest rate payment that's in the contract that specifies needs to be paid yeah. back in fiat. this is going to be a total windfall for people that like aren't house hopping as these interest rates are going lower. If they're refining the same house, they're staying in the same house, and um, they've got those terms locked in there and they're not signing contracts that say that the bank can Pretty much, maybe re-denominate some of the stuff (laughs) in other terms. Make sure you're paying attention to that fine print here in the coming five years. Um, There's going to be massive beneficiaries for people that are levered that are able to sustain a job and collect payment and stuff their free cash flows into Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a lot of relief, like way more than I think people are anticipating. Like the the world looks really, really dark right now. For your common person, but I would tell you we might be at the darkest part of the night here very soon, and it's going to start probably trending in a much more favorable direction for people, especially as Bitcoin gets further and further adopted.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree. And speaking of the internet, um, if I can ever host this debate, I'm doing it because we—it's all Pittsburghers. But uh, Mark Cuban and you—I I, got what an idiot. <laughs> It's so funny cuz I used to have so much respect for him. Um, you know what?
1: Me too. Me too. I and as a Pittsburgher, I was always a little bit proud like, oh yeah, Mark Cuban, he's awesome. Like, I really like the guy. Um, you know, he seems to be like very level-headed and somebody who, you know, just kind of a good a good dude. But boy oh boy, his takes on the on the whole Bitcoin space <laughs>
0: Oh my so God. like completely swing and miss which is funny too because like i'm sure you know like he has an open email address but uh but he and i have like a, a, a at least a uh, handful of emails back and forth like where i've just picked his brain on random things so i was always like you know ah, nice pittsburger and then all of a sudden i see him just go down this shitcoin coin round i'm like oh well and the, so, yeah the, I,
1: I, the issue for me like the the literally the point where i was just like i'm um, I, I will never like this guy's dead to me is when mm-hmm. he went on Ellen and was there like telling her audience, you need to go buy Dogecoin. And I was just like, I'm done. Like, you know what, dude? You're you're dead to me. Like you have a platform, a massive platform to reach out and influence people. And you're out there like pushing a dog coin that has no developers, has nothing like. No layer to nothing, right? It's, yeah. it's a disaster. It's a joke. Yeah. It's a joke. And here he is pushing that on a show like that. I was like, dude, you, you are so washed up. You are not the person you were when you were reading operators manuals down in Texas, um, yeah. you, you know trying to break into the scene into the tech scene. like you are not that person anymore. And so you know, whatever, he moves on and, and I move on and whatever.
0: That's a, I mean, it's the same thing I had with, with Elon where I, I, I do a good job, I think, of just like I assume I try to not hold people in like this high, like, you know. Yeah, you can't. Standing. You can't, you, can't, you, can't you know, idolize people. No. Um, but, uh you know, I always respected Elon a lot. And then I actually put out a thread. This is before I probably had like 200 followers at this time. So, but like I put out a thread about the Doge thing where I was just like, kind of like what you said about uh, uh, with Mark going on Ellen, I was like, it's just gonna it's just gonna hurt unsuspecting people, you know. It's just that's what's bo- that's what bothers me about it. I don't I care agree. what Elon says about uh Bitcoin because Bitcoin doesn't care what Elon says, you know. Yeah. Um and uh but yeah, it's it's the doge thing and getting into all that that that, that you know really turned me off to him. And um, you know, like they say, it just uh, kind of slays your uh, slays your your heroes. Um but one yeah by well, one. <laughs> yeah, one by one they keep uh they keep going down. If you Let's see it,
1: if there's one thing I've learned, if you've got bad incentives, Bitcoin will find a way to ex- express it in a very public way.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's really that's so true. And uh keep those uh those incentives in li- aligned in the right way. Uh well Preston, I I, I could take up your time asking questions all about the podcast and everything, but maybe, maybe we save that for another time down the road. Uh, and I can just we can do a, a podcast about making podcasts and uh, you know <laughs> and, and give people because I, I to me honestly I think in the next six to nine months we're going to see an explosion of new podcasts yeah. coming on, which is a great thing. Um, so yeah, maybe we'll do that in a little bit here to to kind of give and maybe I'll have more success at that point. So, um, but uh, but thanks for coming on, I appreciate it.
1: Hey, my pleasure, and thanks for reaching out. Yep. Yins are awesome.
0: Yins are awesome.